Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers Blue Velvet, the David Lynch film from 1986. And on my Patreon at this same time, either this week or next, I will be publishing a Twin Peaks cinema discussion uh, podcast where I'll be looking at Blue Velvet's relationship to the David Lynch co-created series Twin Peaks, which came out a few years after this. So it's kind of a part two in a way to this discussion here. Uh, the link will be available in the show notes as soon as it's ready. You can also check out uh, patreon.com slash lost in the movies for more on that. So think of this almost as a two-parter here. If you have any thoughts on the film, please let me know via email, comments, uh, here or on my site, lostinthemovies.com, wherever. And I'll share that as listener feedback in coming episodes. The previous episode of this podcast focused on the film Sorry to Bother You as part of my Left of the Movie series where I look at various films through a political lens, and that's a film about a strike and uh, much more fantastical elements as well, uh, created by Boots Riley in 2018. And it seemed timely. I, I had planned to cover it anyways around this time, but it was appropriate because of the Union Drive down in Bessemer, Alabama. And right around the time that this podcast coming out, I think we're going to see the results of that if they got a union down there or not. So I, I talk about that a little bit in the podcast, uh, supplementing what I had already discussed about the film. So you can check that out. My work uh, on my site, lostinthemovies.com, lately has been focused on Mad Men. I've been doing a viewing diary of season four, and uh, this is the first time that I've actually seen this series. So each review is written right after I've seen that episode. I don't know what's upcoming. So whether you are a veteran viewer or a new viewer like myself, you can follow along. And I, I'm doing these sorts of viewing diaries for TV shows because I always regretted not doing it for Twin Peaks in some manner or another. Like I can't recover whatever my initial thoughts were when I first saw an episode. So it's been really fun doing this for Mad Men, which is such a great show. The, the episodes in the past couple weeks were Christmas Comes But Once a Year, which is episode two of season four, and then episode three, which is the good news. On Patreon for $5 a month patrons, I put out two Lost in Twin Peaks episodes, catching up with rewards that I'd fallen behind on. So episodes 24 and 25 from the late second season, where the show kind of makes a comeback in a lot of people's minds. And then for $1 a month patrons, I opened up my Lost in Twin Peaks episode on uh, covering episode 19 from the mid-season of that, uh, one of the goofier episodes of the series. So that's it for uh, my other work. Let's get into Blue Velvet. From the mind of David Lynch comes a modern-day masterpiece so startling, so provocative, so mysterious, that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. Velvet is David Lynch's fourth feature film. In some ways, it's a break with what came before and a harbinger of what was to come. And in other ways, it's the culmination of earlier trends in his work that would change quite a bit with his next few films. It tells the story of Jeffrey Beaumont, Kyle McLaughlin, a college student who returns to the town where he grew up. His father is in the hospital, and there seems to be little going on in the quiet community of Lumberton. 
However, Jeffrey finds an ear in an open field, takes it to a police detective, John Williams, played by George Dickerson, and then begins investigating himself, alongside the detective's teenage daughter, Sandy, Laura Dern. Jeffrey falls into a world of sexual perversion, kidnapping, and drug dealing, not only as a witness, but, at times, and to varying degrees, a participant. A triangle emerges between him, the older haunted lounge singer Dorothy Valens, Isabella Rossellini, and Frank Booth, Dennis Hopper, a nitrous oxide-sucking psychopath who is holding Dorothy's husband and son hostage so that he can keep Dorothy silent while he rapes and abuses her at her apartment. Jeffrey witnesses one of their encounters while hiding in Dorothy's closet, and then he becomes Dorothy's lover, even as a romance blossoms between him and the innocent Sandy. How can these worlds coexist with each other? Not to mention within Jeffrey himself. Every time that I've seen Blue Velvet, it's usually been in conjunction with another film, usually another Lynch film. The first time I saw it was a few days or weeks after I'd seen Mulholland Drive for the first time. That was my gateway drug into Lynch. At the time, I was disappointed by it because it didn't have the same sense of dreamlike mystery with all these different layers to it. When I saw it again years later, I appreciated it more, but I was seeing it after Firewalk with me, which was one of the most emotional Lynch experiences, so I saw it mostly in light of its kind of coolness in that regard, the way it seemed a little more distant, certainly in terms of its style, um, not quite as immersive in the character's experiences, at least to my eyes. And I saw it very much as the sort of cold, secular, um, almost Freudian Lynch film versus the warm, enveloping, Lynchian um, films that came later with more of like a Jungian atmosphere to them. More recently, when I watched Blue Velvet, I've seen it in the full context of Lynch's work. So a few years ago, I did a review of all of his films, and I watched them in order. And at that point, I realized that, well, there are some big differences between Blue Velvet and later films like Firewalk with me and Mulholland Drive. It also represented quite a departure from the feel of his other films, his earlier films. And, you know, things like Dune and Eraserhead and Elephant Man are even much more colder, whereas Blue Velvet at least has the sort of the warmth of the sunlight and the cutesy dialogue and humor that, that his early films really don't have. And that's one way in which Blue Velvet kind of is the first film in his work to fully establish that Lynchian mode where you have the mixture of light and dark, whereas the earlier films are really more just heavily on the dark side in a lot of ways. I also watched Blue Velvet on a big screen in 2015, where it was a double feature with the Rivette film, The Duchess of Langay. So even in that case, I was comparing it to another work. And then when I watched it again last fall, it was hard not to see it in light of the return. In fact, I watched it right before and leading into a uh, marathon viewing of uh, both the old Twin Peaks and the new Twin Peaks. So kind of seeing it in, the, in that context now that Lynch had created another work with Laura Dern and Kyle MacLachlan side by side. At that time, I also watched the deleted scenes, which I don't think I'd seen most of before. I think there were a few on an older DVD, but now they've been released on a Blu-ray, really nice condition, sort of in the pattern of the missing pieces and more things that happened from Inland Empire and other um, Lynch assemblies of, of missing footage where he almost makes it like a parallel film. And that was interesting because it opened up the work in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, literally in one case, you go up to the roof of Dorothy's apartment, this enclosed space, and you're actually out 
on a vista over the whole town and there's a lightning storm and there's this beautiful horn version of mysteries of love that plays where she teases jeffrey with the idea of leaping off the roof and then they embrace and it's like he's almost seeing into her soul i feel more than he does in any of the existing scenes in the movie it's a, it's a really very nice scene and then there's also a lot more wacky humor that got cut like there's all these stage shows at the nightclub and really it it gives you a sense that this is always how lynch has created his work and i think at times people say well you know uh, blue velvet had this discipline and then later films lost it but blue velvet is almost very much the exception that rule i suppose perhaps um, all of the early films are in, in a sense but dune and elephant man weren't really projects that arose with him. So Blue Velvet and Eraserhead are the only examples, really, of ideas that formed with Lynch and then which, you know, he himself and his editors uh, decided to cut down and pare down and make more economical. In the case of Eraserhead, Lynch actually did it himself, coming back from the theater from an early screening and saying, we got to lose 30 or 40 minutes, it's just not working. And I think Blue Velvet, Dwayne Dunham, and, you know, Dino De Laurentiis, who was producing it, uh, he put almost no conditions on Lynch, except it had to be two hours. So they really had to press it down. And I think that works really well for this film. I think it was uh, Daru who wrote in recently about uh, watching Blue Velvet again and feeling how economical it was and kind of comparing that with uh, The Last Jedi and how films have sort of lost sight of that. But I think with Lynch in general, he just really likes that room to play around. He's not that concerned with telling a tight story. So this is really more the exception than the rule. And the deleted scenes kind of show that. They show what else could have been in this movie and what he probably wanted to be in this movie, even though it doesn't flow into that uh, more straightforward story. And one thing that is nice about having that kind of story structure that Blue Velvet does in the end is it makes it feel like a more conventional film, which makes the surreal sequences all the more jarring. You feel like you've just wandered into another movie theater by mistake. You know, you were in one and you went to the bathroom, you came back and whoops, you're in the, you're in the wrong movie, you know? That clipped quality is, is something unusual. And you get flashes of that off-screen wackiness throughout the film, like these, these figures who are just, you know, the one guy standing there with his dog or some guy, I think he's using a yo-yo somebody buying an axe in the store these odd figures that lynch is able to throw in for a second or two uh, there's that weird mask on kyle mclaughlin's wall it's like a shrunken head or something up on the up on the wall these little unexplained flourishes that in another lynch film would spend much more time with but in this film they just get a little peek into the main storyline the script for the film is also more on the nose in some ways more explicit than what we see on screen. That's one way in which uh, the finished product actually resembles Lynch's later work more than the original intent. So, for example, Dorothy says to Jeffrey in the script that she said, you know, when she says, you put your disease into me, she actually explains that she means his semen, which, you know, is way more explicit, I guess, both in the sense of being racy, but also just being explanatory in a way that Lynch would try to avoid for the most part later on. He'd just, he'd say something and he'd let you think what it means. And then also there was a scene where Jeffrey gets beat up by Frank in the film, we just see him punching him and then he wakes up the next morning and is all bloody and bruised. In the script, he's supposed to wake up with his pants down and something written in lipstick, I think, on his butt. And it was just supposed to be a heavy, heavy implication that he was sodomized the night before, actually raped by Frank and his 
associates. And Kyle McLaughlin begged Lynch not to include that. He just was really uncomfortable with that scene, and they ended up not. Um, some people can still sort of read it into there, but you know, it, as filmed and, and shown in the film, it goes in a different direction. The whole film has sort of a fever dream quality, but not so much like a fever dream itself. That's probably a better description of something like Inland Empire, but more like coming down from that fever dream. You've gotten better, maybe you're lying in bed, the window's open, but you still have that little bit of an aftershock buzzing around your head. It's like a storm has just passed and everything's a little bit raw. The nerves are still raw. The environment is calm, but your senses are heightened and you're a little on edge. That's probably how I would describe Blue Velvet. Interestingly enough, adding to this slightly uncomfortable, hard-to-pin-down feeling is the fact that even though the framework of the story sets you up to think of this as like a small town being violated by these seedy forces, there's actually a very quasi-urban feel to the film. It doesn't just take place in this Norman Rockwell land of small houses and open fields. There's a lot of big apartment buildings. I mean, Dorothy herself, she lives in an apartment in a building with probably a few hundred rooms, although it seems kind of empty. Nobody else is ever there. It's a different environment. It's almost like a city and a suburb smashed right next to each other and living in an uneasy coexistence. You can actually see the places where Lynch was formed here in the quieter moments and the more placid moments maybe it's a bit of Spokane but there's some Philadelphia in here too like those shots of the abandoned warehouse where Frank and the yellow man go to conduct their business and that crime scene the woman lying on the ground with her legs broken and the shootout at the end of the film is much more of a Philadelphia vibe than a Spokane vibe but there's also a sense of where Lynch grew up in his teens in Virginia in the film The Art Life he talks about moving to I think it was Alexandria and how everything seemed to be different. Like his memories of Spokane are all uh, sunlit and his memories of Alexandria are all rainy or dark. Like it's always night in Alexandria and it's always daytime in Spokane. There, there's a bit of that, but of course Alexandria was still suburban, still somewhat removed, although close to like Washington, D.C. Some mix of all of these, but perhaps more where he grew up as a teenager. And certainly in the art life, he talks about going out with friends and just being up to no good. And he's never clear on what that is, but it feels almost like more of a vibe than actual actions. And that's what's interesting about some of the scenes with Frank and his gang. They're very funny. There's an amusing, absurdist hangout vibe to them. And Frank himself is totally evil but everybody else just seems to kind of be out to have a good time and, you know, they'll participate in this violence and the drug trade, but they're not really like defined by it. Like it's more amoral than immoral. And in some ways you get the sense this is almost what Lynch finds more frightening about it, that it isn't within this starkly defined black and white universe that he's created. It's, it's in this weird gray zone. He doesn't quite know what to do with that, even though he's clearly totally uh, conversant with it. You know, so this is him not just going back to them, but also, you know, being in Hollywood going out. I mean, he hung out with a lot of these guys. Jack Nance, who plays one of the gang in the film, was a huge drinker. And, you know, all, Dennis Hopper had just come back from a decades-long stint with drugs. So he was, Lynch was totally of this this boundary-pushing, decadent world. But even though he himself was a little more clean living, it seems, but you know, he's conversant with it. So I think that adds an interesting dynamic to the film where you're seeing it through Jeffrey's eyes of almost a frightened child. So Lynch is familiar with it, but threatened by it. And that ties into something else I want to talk about, 
which is the sense in which Blue Velvet is haunted by the 60s. And that seems kind of an odd thing to say. Like, the film's fashion, a lot of his aesthetics seem to stop around 1962, 63. It's more of a 50s film. The 60s, 70s, and 80s never happened when you see some of the teenage behavior, for example. And that's a trait that Lynch would continue up until Lost Highway, and then he lets the modern era come into it. But the film is haunted by the 60s for a few reasons. By casting Dennis Hopper as the villain, it's it's bound to evoke that that sense of that time. You know, Dennis Hopper's most famous film was Easy Rider, both as an actor and a director. He actually created the film, and he was very much a 60s counterculture figure, particularly for his drug use. So to have him there in this film already is haunting it with that presence. And just the fact that this was made in 1986, I think, makes that an inevitable component. The interesting thing about the 80s is for all of the conservatism of them and the sense of wanting to revert back to the 50s, there was still this strong hangover from the 60s and 70s. That idea of recovering from a fever dream and it's out of your system, but not entirely, and you still have that raw, nervy feel. I mean, that fever dream was, in a sense, the 60s and the 70s. So the film is existing within that shadow. And Lynch always has this kind of ambivalence to that, I think. It's interesting because he came up in the 60s. You know, he was in his 20s in the late 60s. He was an art student. He was making these abrasive avant-garde films. He was part of that environment, yet it's clear he never quite felt at home there. And I think like a lot of people in society at that time had these mixed feelings about that legacy. And at the time, he was known as a fairly conservative person who supported Ronald Reagan, upheld these old-fashioned American ideals of behavior and iconography and everything like that. This is a film by a conservative who actually lives and functions inside a non-conservative culture. And that ties into that sense that I'm talking about. The idea that there's more going on in this film than meets the eye is an intriguing thing to play with. As I said, the first time I saw it, I was disappointed by the extent to which that doesn't seem to be true. And I do think it's still kind of reading into it to find some of these things there. But there are some interesting ideas that people have played around with. Like, for one thing, I've always seen the cop, uh, Laura Dern's dad in this, Sandy's, Sandy's father, as being somewhat suspicious. Part of it's the performance style, the the way that Dickerson acts. He's just got this sort of off-kilter, uncanny delivery that I like that always makes you question what's really going on. He has this weird look he does with his eyes at Jeffrey and other people. But the fact that one of the villains is actually his partner and the way he reacts when he comes in the room at the end, when Jeffrey is shot Frank, he races and he points the gun at Jeffrey. He looks around like trying to assess the situation his daughter's behind him. He can't shoot Jeffrey. It looks like maybe Jeffrey's taking care of everything for him. Frank, who may have been a cop himself, he's gone. The yellow man is dead. And so if, if the father had any involvement with this conspiracy, probably nobody will know now. So he can breathe a sigh of relief and say it's all over now, Jeffrey. Like I said, that's, that's very much imposing something on the film. I'm like 99% sure it's not intended. Maybe 90 to 95% sure. But I like that idea. Another idea that people have thrown around, I can't remember who said this, but I think several people have, is the notion that perhaps what Jeffrey stumbled onto is not actually as clear-cut a case of victimization as it seems, and that in fact there's a sort of a sex game going on between Dorothy and Frank, and he's too naive to understand this, and they're involving him with it. Now, of course, that doesn't quite work in the context of the film for a lot of reasons, um, one of which is, you know, Dorothy's husband really is kidnapped. He really is killed, I guess, by this reading. They could say Dorothy 
was a part of that or something. I don't know. It's it's a bit too cynical of a reading of her, I think. But I there is something interesting about the idea that the real world is this amoral blurred zone. And when we see the film through Jeffrey's eyes as this arch division between these these two spheres, he's wandering in this game that he doesn't really understand. We'll be talking about Eyes Wide Shut. Probably maybe we can address that idea more there in, in a film where it is more overtly that thing. As I mentioned, when I watched the film recently, it was very much informed by The Return. I think this time watching the movie, I was actually able to see it in its own light more than I probably ever have before. Nonetheless, though, it's hard not to watch those scenes with Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Dern and not think of the new Twin Peaks. And it's just such a fascinating juxtaposition. Scenes of them driving at night, although interestingly enough, uh, she's driving this in this film, whereas uh, MacLachlan's driving in The Return. Uh, there's these meetings between them where she comes out of the darkness instead of him coming out of the curtains and the return and she says to him in blue velvet i can't tell if i don't know if you're a detective or a pervert it gave the return so much weight that relationship between them so for me when other people were complaining like well where did diane come from what's she doing here i felt like because what we knew from blue velvet because of that familiarity it worked for me and in this film laura dern is just purely innocent she represents the light in jeffrey's life there's no real ambiguity there which is quite different to how she's used in The Return. It continues some of the ideas that are present in Blue Velvet, but it makes her into a more complex figure. And I think that says a lot about the films that Lynch made in between Blue Velvet and The Return. mentioned at the beginning you can check out a part two to this talking about the connection to twin peaks uh, by becoming a patron for a dollar a month you'll also get access to hundreds of hours at this point of uh, archived podcasts going back to 2018 i, I do very long podcasts there much the, the public ones i sort of keep short and trim those ones get uh, everything uh, in them if you enjoy this podcast please consider rating reviewing and subscribing here's a taste of what's coming in two weeks a documentary film by Ken Burns, who right now is doing a series on Hemingway. This is on another great American author, and uh, I'll just play the snippet here to take you out. His humor is timeless. I was born modest, but it didn't last. And so is his story. I was made merely in the image of God, but not otherwise resembling him enough to be mistaken for him by anybody but a very nearsighted person. Thank you.